Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the die is a bum. <laughs> That was Bob Hawke, the 23rd Prime Minister of Australia. I thought that quote sounded better coming from him than it certainly does from me. It was the early hours of the 27th September 1983 when the Prime Minister delivered the famous quip and Australians the world over celebrated victory. Ask any Australian where they were that day and they'll remember. I sure do. A fitting quote for our discussion today as our guest is one of the key figures from that momentous occasion. Our guest today is a legend of Australian sport John Bertrand Ayo, yachtsman, Olympic medalist and world champion, who skippered the Wing Keel Australia 2 to win the 1983 America's Cup, breaking 132 years of American domination, the longest-running record in the history of modern sport, what is arguably the greatest upset in modern sporting history. He is currently chair of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, former chair of the Alana and Madeline Children's Foundation, and until recently, John was the president of Swimming Australia. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In a captivating conversation with an inspiring Australian, we look back on that historic day and the lead up to it. Having to overcome a 3-1 deficit, the courage, conviction and cunning required to conquer the Americans. Beyond the thousands of split-second decisions at the helm, the racing yacht with the wing kill was a technological feat in itself. An engineer by background, John draws on the importance of embracing technology and innovation. Having the trust and vision, together with the mental toughness and the psychology of winning in building high-performing teams in pursuit of excellence. Finally, we discuss what is leadership, from the deck to the boardroom, and we find out what's next in John's illustrious career. So sit back and enjoy. Team spirit is a one-way street. John, welcome to the show. Great pleasure, Greg. I've listened to some of your podcasts and uh, impressed. Very, very impressive. Well, on that, I'm surprised you turned up, but I'll, I'll take that as a, uh, a great uh, bonus for me. John, what was it actually like growing up in Chelsea? Well, I had a uh, I had a pretty idyllic life. You know, we our house was right on the beach down in uh, Chelsea, Bristol Avenue, Chelsea, and uh, Mum and Dad had a soft toy manufacturing business, a company called Burlex Toys. Right. My mum's name was Beryl. My dad's name was Lex, so it's Burlex, of course. And they made teddy bears and koalas, soft toys, and sold them to Fossies and David Jones and Myers and 
and also the country stores. And we just used to, you know, muck around with boats because we just climb over the back fence, my brother and I, and we're on to the beach at Chelsea. So we'd muck around with boats and swim and God knows what in summertime and play footy in the winter and try and do some schoolwork in between. But, um, you know, it's one of those eras where, you know, you, you disappear in the morning, you wouldn't come back at night. Forget about having bottles of water and food. You know, it's just amazing when you look back on it. There's total freedom. Well, as long as you're home just in time for dinner. Yeah, well, you come home because you're starved. You know, that's <laughs> the only reason. Come home for the, for the grub. Well, what was it like for mum and dad toiling away there in the uh, the man in that? I guess in that toy business, wouldn't have been the easiest of things. No, it wasn't. And my dad did it hard, and um, he uh, he smoked. Well, they all smoked in that era. Yeah. You know? But uh, so dad was the salesperson and he, anyway, he died when he was 50 years old of lung cancer. Oh, right. His father died of lung cancer at the same age, at, at 50 years old. And, and there was no relationship between smoking and lung cancer in that era. You know, we're talking about a long time ago. And mm. I was 15 years old and uh, my brother Lex uh, was 18 and we didn't even have enough money for the funeral. You know, we broke, as it turns out. Not that we knew, because life kind of went on. But anyway, when the funeral came around, and mum, you know, this is an amazing story. My mum, she used to design the teddies and koalas and stuff them. And uh, you know, down the back of the shed that uh, dad built and we helped. But anyway, she needed to raise some money. So she went to the local banks and got knocked back each time. And eventually she got one of the local banks in Chelsea to, um, you know, give her a loan, an overdraft. And uh, this is really interesting because this is survival. There's no fallback. There's no nothing to support us. And anyway, she designed a new range of teddy bears in particular, flew to Sydney, hired the biggest suite at the Hilton Hotel. Wow. We're not talking about a Harvard MBA course here. We're just talking about intuition. Yep. And she got and she got a room, a suite there, where mirrors made the teddy bears look bigger. And she lined them all up. And she got the buyers to come along to the Hilton Hotel instead of her going cap in hand to the buyers. And she sold a year's production out in one week. Wow. You know, but there was no there was no fallback. There's no money. You know, it's just a you know money borrowed from the bank. She came back, hired the local church town hall in uh, in Chelsea which wasn't being used at the time. And uh, and with my grandmother, they built a business, Buildex Toys, and that sent us, you know, basically continue, continue on. So, you know, here's my mother up until then stuffing teddies and designing and dad doing it hard. I remember him coughing all the time, whatever. And the real, the reality is the entrepreneur was just the opposite. You know, my mother was there. And when, she, when dad died, she was released yeah, when right. you look back on it, you know. Yep. It's the power of individuals doing stuff. And in this case, it was, was mum. And my grandmother could um, calculate faster than you could enter into a, into, a, uh, into a computer. She'd look at a set of numbers from the bottom up, zip, 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 add them up. So my grandfather and my grandmother on, on my mother's side came out from England and they started the Preston Market right. in Melbourne. Right. Yeah, okay. went broke. Didn't control the cash flow, so my my grandfather then became a professional fisherman down in Chelsea in the same lived in the same street. So, 
you know, I look back on it and I've, I've got so many role models, particularly strong women, as it turns out. The, that risk-taking then from mum, that was make or break, wasn't it? There was no option. There was no fallback at all. There's no super funds or, you know, in that we're talking about, um, you know, a, a long time ago. And uh, it was just one of those things that she had to make it work. And what happened thereafter, John? Well, then mum, effectively, I, I continued on at Mordial Chelsea High School. Uh, I had to repeat because I had to get a scholarship, a Commonwealth scholarship in that era. And I became a head prefect. And in fact, I don't know how I did it, but ducks at the school, just because I repeated, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but mum then uh, met another fellow who was head of uh, sales for Pratt Whitney Jet Engines. And they came out to sell this original 747s, a guy called Bill Shel- Sheldon. And mum went back with Bill to the US. And then, uh, as, as it turns out, Bill passed on and uh, and uh, mum came back to Australia. So she was an extraordinary woman. And, um, you know, just this survival instinct, is, it's extraordinary, wonderful. And we live, our family lives off that type of thing, you know, our kids as well. So what is it, sort of stepping up in adversity? Yeah, that's right. And my grandmother was really inf- inf- influential on me. She used to, she used to follow Billy Graham. Oh yeah. Oh, the yeah. Uh, the evangelist. You know what? There was over a hundred thousand people at the MCG when Billy Graham came yes. to Australia. Like That's it's right. extraordinary when you look back at it. And, and my grandmother, Evelyn Cull, God bless her, proud English woman. Um, she used to send me little notes. Johnny, you can do anything if you want. You yeah, know this right. sort of thing, based on quotes from Billy Graham. And that was all part and parcel of my upbringing. When I look back on it. You know, that uh, my grandmother was my number one supporter in anything that, you know, one you could you could dream about. So the, sort of this unlimited type of environment that I was lucky. You need luck from time to time, don't you? Yeah, but you need that supporting hand. And I guess I guess the, the first question I was going to ask you, were you always a confident individual? No. Like you're saying, you're coming from a, you're coming from a background of, gee whiz, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, well, confidence, no. I don't think that's the case, but uh, certainly lack of limitations on perhaps what can be done, you know. I wasn't told when I was a kid that I couldn't do stuff. It wasn't really part of the dialogue. Not that, not that there was an aggressively over-the-top, you know, environment that I, that I did grow up in, but, uh, you know, you just you look back on the, you know, the history of our family and the survival To put it even into further context, when mum came out to Australia, she was four years old and my grandmother and grandfather came out and they didn't have enough money. They they actually bought a draft horse and lived in the stables. Yeah, right. Just after the, you know, it's the reality of the situation. Um, And again, you know, we're talking about early parts of, of this country's evolution in many ways. But it sort of brings it home today, doesn't it? Yeah. When everyone's sort of doing it tough out there and we hear every day, COVID and we hear that it's uh, everyone's in misfortune, but there you are. You said you're growing up with it and it was almost taken as day-to-day. That's right. You know, we never entertained. We never had money to entertain. It's the concept of going to a restaurant or even having people at home, but we'd have friends everywhere. But it was kind of like a laissez It was a different type of environment compared to the structure, perhaps, that we we certainly live in, in in such a wealthy country as Australia is now. So what was the emphasis at home then? Was it sport? Was it education? Was it was it all the above? And was it just to keep on going as hard as you can? I think it was freedom. 
Yeah, right. Okay. You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, not as if we talk politics around the, you know, the dining room table or even sport, but it was freedom and, yeah, and the lifestyle that we grew up in more than anything. For example, I didn't like, you know, my eventually we, you know, eventually Dad got a, a boat built. It was called a Sabo, single-handed uh, training boat. And my brother and I sailed this thing up and down. We had no coaches, no nothing in that era. But um, I just didn't like racing. You know, we started sailing when I was about eight or nine, mucking around, not, you know, just mucking around. But I really didn't like competition until I was looking back at it until I was about 14 or 15. I, in hindsight, I'd get too nervous. I was actually really quite nervous about the sense of competition and, and winning and losing and so on. But it was only when I started to get more mature that, I started to get a good feel of, hey, you know, I really enjoy competition. So in hindsight, looking back, uh, you know, I'm a pretty competitive person. Was it the old man who taught you to sail or, you said, as you said, you trial and error, was it? It's interesting. No, uh, mum and dad had no interest in sailing. You know, they were beaving away just trying to, you know, make a living. Yeah, right. My grandfather was a professional fisherman. He's the one, you know, he and Nan, my grandmother, you know, they're the ones that started the Preston Market, came down. And uh, he became a professional fisherman. He went, yeah, they built a boat, a 12-foot uh, boat called Evelyn after my grandmother. And he went fishing every day at 4, 4 a.m. in the morning yeah, right. off the beach of Chelsea. Yep. And uh, he was then involved with the Chelsea Yacht Club, which was only about a kilometre along the beach. And uh, that then became, you know, our world. So it wasn't as if mum or dad uh, had interest in sailing, but uh, my grandfather was, you know, part of the, yeah, so-called crash boat, which is, you know, rescue boat and so on. Yep. That was kind of the introduction into the sailing world. And But there was no structured coaching or anything. And in fact, I've never really had any coaching, as it turns out. It's just by the passion of following a dream. <laughs> well, in yeah. and in following that dream, were you the first to go to university in, in the family? No, Lex, my brother Lex is three years older. He went and he did uh, dentistry. Right. And then I went to uh, Monash University and uh, mum, the only thing that mum was insistent on is we get a degree, each got a degree. She, as she said, she doesn't care whether we become the, a dustman or the garbage collector, as long as we've got a degree. That was her insistence. And um, so I went to, as it turns out, got a place via the Commonwealth Scholarship to at Monash University very early in those days. Yep. And... Uh, then did mechanical engineering and then met a guy called Bill Melbourne, Professor Bill Melbourne, who became a really important part of my life. And he was head of aerodynamics at uh, within the Department of Mechanical Engineering. And I, my imagination was captured in that space, you know, talking about the elliptic shapes of, of, of uh, Spitfire wings so they could outturn uh, measurements in World War II. I, it just blew me away. I just couldn't believe it stuff. <laughs> Beautiful boyhood stuff. And were you thinking at that time, whilst I'm learning about sailing, I could uh, maybe apply some of this thinking to the sport? Yes, no question. Like I, one of my claims to fame, Gregory, is, is that uh, my thesis at final year at Monash University at, you know, mechanical engineering, um, it topped the university. This is, again, this, is, this is from the guy who repeated year 12. Yeah. And I really not, you know, I wasn't that, that strong academically, but... Uh, it's only because I passionately involved. So, what was this? What was the, um, you know, the title? Optimum angle of attack of America's Cup sales. You're kidding. 
<laughs> yeah. So that and that uh, lifting line theory and all that stuff that's still relevant today. So you know, I, I, once I got involved in something, I became passionately involved. And where where did the spark come from? to move in up the echelon in sailing to this thing called the America's Cup? Well, it wasn't as if I dreamt about winning the America's Cup or dreamt about competing in the Olympic Games. It's yeah. just I dreamt about uh, wind and water and watching the bubbles go past. You know, I tell kids, you know, and parents come along and they say, well, you know, what can you tell little Johnny? Well, I just say, just go out and have fun. And if you can go out and have fun, and watch the bubbles go past, which I still remember the first day we went sailing when I was seven years old with my brother. And, um, you know, and if people get start to get really enthusiastic about stuff, then they can do, they can do some, they can do anything. Yes. That's the point. You've got to have passion. We know that. And uh, interestingly enough, I still have the passion for the sport and I'm a mature aged gentleman now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, MIT, how did that fall and how did that come into life? Well, uh, I was doing. I did pretty well, obviously, at, uh, at Monash, right. and indeed, uh, Bill Melbourne, a professor, mechanical engineering, uh, asked, suggested that I apply for a scholarship at MIT, which I did. Wow! And I, I got a scholarship, and so we combined that again. It wasn't as if I was were tracking any business plan, but you know, I was then invited also to try out for the America's Cup because I was national champion in a whole range of classes then in Australia, I was, you know, you know, doing pretty good. And I had to make the choice between AFL football or VFL in that era. I was playing for South Melbourne under 19s or or sailing. And I made the latter choice. And at uh, any rate, um, a guy called Jim Hardy, later to be called to be named uh, Sir James Hardy, a wonderful man. Yep. He invited me to try out on the America's Cup boat, which I did. And at any rate, I, I married my... Uh, my beautiful Raza, uh, in 19, we're talking about way back in 1969, we're off to the US for the first America's Cup. And then after we got blown out of the water by the Yanks, uh, I then, we, we, Raza and I went to Boston, up to Boston from Newport, Rhode Island, and started the MIT postgraduate degree. And uh, Raza became a nurse because she was already at St. V's, St. Vincent's Hospital. Yeah. And she was, would you believe, Gregory, Delivering drug addicted babies at Boston City Hospital. Jeez, all, all, all that time ago. Yep, drug addicted babies at Boston City Hospital. Wow. While I was mucking around at MIT with a guy called Jerry Milgram, a similar type of mentor that I had compared to Bill Melvin, and um, fast tracked a uh, a master of, of science within the Department of Ocean Engineering yeah. at MIT. Just enough to get on a plane to come back to Australia to win selection for the seventy two Olympics. <laughs> well, before we go to the 72 Olympics, what what did you really learn from the Americans? Oh, they're highly competitive. Like we'd, we'd lived in the US for quite a long time. Like, And uh, bottom line is the Americans highly educated, highly competitive. They will eat their grandmother if required. <laughs> yeah. Full stop. Yeah. We're talking about a highly competitive race of people. You never bet against the Yanks. You know, all the ups and downs of financial crises and all that sort of thing, you never bet against them because they are super competitive, a highly mobile population. They'll move from one location of the US to another just for their, you know, for their career. Unlike Australia, we're kind of sticky about 
relationships and family and God knows what, that's fine. But um, so the US are a competitive race of people and uh, and they're, they're highly intelligent and they're tough to beat. There's no question about it. But therefore at MIT, the difference I could explain between MIT, you know, which is considered probably the best engineering school in the world yep. and a university in Australia is, is that you'd, in Australia, it's, you'd, you'd stop for morning tea and have lunch, <laughs> afternoon tea, you know. In the US, if you can get a donut on the way through, you're lucky. You're doing well. That was it. And But everything was first name basis. There's no Mr. Whatever or Professor this. And it was full on and there was full on, you know, enthusiasm at, at, at MIT in terms of research and all the stuff going on, US Navy work. Uh, it was really very, very interesting to see how that, those people operated. Was there many other Australians over there at the time, John? Uh, no, I didn't see many, but we had people from all around the world within the uh, the, the postgraduate I was doing from all particularly navies, you know, all, all different uh, naval officers doing you know postgraduate work. Yeah, and you made a big call. You're going to be a superstar as your rules player, and you chose to go down the sailing route. What was the um, what was the reasoning behind making the call? It was easy. It was passion. You know, Simple again, as? Pardon? Simple as that, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I just loved the whole concept of the sailing thing. Did I know where it was going to take me? Not really. Uh, the footy was great, you know, whatever, but there's nothing. It didn't have the intrigue for me compared to, uh, you know, the sport of sailing. What's the thrill of sailing? Well, at the level I'm at now, it's the, uh, well, it's a competitive environment, of, but it's really in marrying... It's marrying the uh, the elements of wind and water, and the the wind is never the same. It's all you know. It's like a it's like a good woman. You can never figure them out. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know where you stand. So the wind is always varying. So within the, you're laughing, but it's true. So to give an example, within the world of America's Cup, they spend millions of dollars every America's Cup program trying to figure out what the wind is going to do in the next thirty seconds. 60 seconds, two minutes, five minutes, half hour. Yep. And it varies based on thermal boundary layers. And well, it's, you know, it's a very, very hard thing to, to actually simulate from a mathematical point of view. The best, the best system we've still got is, is our eyeballs connected to the supercomputer hanging between your ears, which is your brain. Yeah, right. And, just ask, and then there's the concept of intuition, which is really interesting. We know so little about, yep. but it's all part of research into the future in terms of you know, high performance, human high performance. But the bottom line is, is that uh, to just endeavor to understand what the wind is going to do in the next 30 seconds in terms of wind shifts with three or four or five, eight degrees wind movement and so on, that's part of the intrigue from my perspective of the sport of sailing. So endeavoring to understand that, use that to your advantage, and then the aerodynamics and, you know, again, the, the bubbles going through the water and also this it lay on top of that is the competitive nature of Really, really interesting people trying to, you know, blow you off the course. And it's also making decisions all the time, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's right. It's a multi, it's a very sophisticated sport. When, you know, I'm head of swimming, obviously, swimming Australia. And uh, I look, you know, I look at all the Olympic sports. The sport of sailing within the Olympics is certainly technically the most complex. No question. So let's talk a bit about that. So 1972, you're selected to represent the country. Yeah. And off the Olympics you go. How did you go? Uh, leather medal. Worse than last. Fourth. By how, by how far? 
Uh, well, you know, so if only. So there's always if only in all this stuff. So if you want to hear my family, um, third last race, leading, ran out of wind, couldn't finish. The race was abandoned. Okay, if we had, if I had won that race, then I would have perhaps won a silver or, or even a gold. Oh wow! But that's all part of the deal, you know. So it's all this if the if only of life. So anyway. Other than mum and the kids, nobody cares about fourth place. It's a terrible thing. So we spent all that time living on the out of a car, rousing myself, my bride. She had no idea marrying me. She she figured that I was a uh, uh, I was a uh, uh, a boring engineer with potential. <laughs> That's how she describes me. God bless her. And I've been now with that young lady for fifty one years. That's in, that's called that's called luck as well. It's called rolling the dice. John, I was going to ask you something else, a little bit out from sailing. You were there at the Olympics at one of the most interesting times or very sad times in Olympic history, which was the massacre at 72. Yes. What was the impact to you? Well, it was really interesting. The puritanical of high-end sport in the Olympics, the concept of politics and, a, and people being murdered was just so far out of left field, you know, something that, no one, including myself, had ever, ever contemplated. So when we heard about what was happening at, at um, uh, in Munich, we were 500 kilometres north in Kiel, okay, outside the village, but just, we still had a very, very large village ourselves. We were prepared to go home, okay. you know, and just toss everything in. It was, if that was the, if that was the, the decision. Now, the reality is the right decision was made. And the, uh, the president of the IOC said that, you know, the, the Olympics shall go on. It was correct decision. But it just blew everyone away. You know, it was just so diametrically opposite to anything you could ever, ever, uh, you know, for, in terms of a nightmare. You know. Did it change your perspective on life at all? Um, it gave me a sense of, um, of, of balance. And indeed, that was part and parcel. But anyway, I decided to give it another go, 76. And the 72 Olympics in, in Germany was, you know, it's a maturing aspect because you really, you know, you look back at all the mistakes made and so on and so forth, and the so-called defiant of life. Yeah, it's all part of the learning curve. It's called scar tissue, Gregory. Yeah, it is. 76, you know. where did the scar go? Well, I was determined to get on the podium. And not get, not win another leather medal. So I won the bronze. Congratulations. Yeah. And that was before the AIS was set up. So we, again, no coaches, $12 a day. You know, you look at it, it's all bullshit <laughs> compared to now. Uh, living again, well, we're living then in the middle, Midwest, uh, of, because I'd done the 74 Olympics, 74 uh, America's Cup with a man called Alan Bond. Yes. People would have heard about Alan. And, um, anyway, we stayed on and, campaigned out of the US, had to do it, won the bronze. But three or four months after those Olympics, I concluded that I could have won the Olympic gold just as easily as the bronze if I had been mentally tougher. Ah, right. And that became extremely important, looking back on it relative to leading into this thing called the America's Cup in 83. But you're still living the life of the immature, weren't you? Absolutely. Well, stringing it together. We're working at North, I was working at North Sales, Raz was working within that group. This was in the Midwest of America, being paid peanuts. But it didn't matter. You know, there's two kids growing up pretty fast. Then, uh, you know, Raza became pregnant. That was a shell shock. <laughs> had to 
had to think about, you know, life as a responsible parent. Yeah. Not that that didn't take a lot of thinking about. It was back into the pen <laughs> and, um, you know, back into the campaign trail. But regardless of that, yeah, again, it's a pretty interesting in terms of um, a life following a dream. So where, so when did this start solidifying that the next step is I've got to go for that, the big one? Well, I'd compete, uh, you know, again, the 1970 America's Cup with, with uh, actually Sir Frank Packer, tough old bastard. <laughs> Raza being a nurse, she was looking after Frank during the America's Cup in 70, you know, watching us getting hammered by the Americans. And that started, that really sparked my imagination of how do we beat these people? Yeah. You know, because they were not in the business of losing. You know, the Americans had, had actually controlled the America's Cup since the before the US Civil War. That's right. You know, 1852. And uh, they were not in the business of losing. So that started to capture my imagination. Is this Could this thing be done? And then I got graduated from MIT, went um, immediately after the Olympic Games, worked with a guy called Ben Lexon mm-hmm. uh, for the 74 America's Cup, and Ellen Bond was the syndicate head. And that was another wild ride. But who, who made the call as you a skipper? Well, I was a crew in 74. Yeah. Again, a crew in 18, we boycotted because of Russia had invaded a country called Afghanistan and the sailing team did not go. But right. anyway, I went across to Newport. Alan rang up and said, John, we've got to have you here. We got hammered there in 80 and then Alan asked me to be you know, basically skipper and captain of the team for 83. Yeah. All right. So you're given this task and you've also looked back and thought, okay, all those years ago, I could have won gold. And the best I've come was third. And you put it down to mental toughness. Yeah. All right. This is our opportunity to have someone like you and have a conversation. What is the psychology of winning? How did you go about it? Well, it's the, the thinking is much more sophisticated now than even in 83. Because I've been able to learn and think through, you know, the concept of winning under extreme pressure. But still, it was relevant then. Uh, and that is really this. It's you, first of all, you've got to put the work in. You know, you, when people say success, well, that's fine. But you, you know, you need to put the so-called ten thousand hours and more in. And that was part of my life journey, looking back on it. And then it really gets down to the consideration of a sense of calmness okay. under extreme pressure. So let me give you an example. For example, our Olympic swimming team next year, Tokyo. I believe it'll happen, but you yeah. know, but twenty twenty one. The finals of the Olympic Games, let's say it's a 100-metre sprint, freestyle. Our athlete is on the starting block. One billion people watching. There is nowhere to hide, right? And this is the reality. This is the America's Cup as well, no different. Or the Olympic Games in many ways. We want our athlete to, to be in a sense of calmness such that the pulse rate, lactic acid, or adrenaline, I should say, all those elements are down such that that person is ready to perform at this, his or her highest level. And we want the world to be into slow motion. So we're now moving into the world of what we call the flow zone. Okay. okay? A state of, of mind where decisions flow easily. And this is really, this is the, this is the silver bullet of high performance from our perspective. And when I look back on the America's Cup, it was. The last race, the America's Cup, was slow motion for me. I would have made maybe 2,000 critical decisions and everything came at me easily. 
Okay, so the fire, the gun fires in Tokyo, 2021, 0.5 of a second reaction, which is world class. Um, whatever it is, five or six strokes, the first 50 meters, tumble turn, coming back. Okay. Our athlete hits the wall. Okay, touches the wall, wins the race. He or she gets out of out of the pool and says to the coach, "How easy was that?" And in addition, I can't even remember the race. So we're now talking about a level of of, of an environment after all the work has been done. Okay, that's the point. Where it becomes easy, not hard. And when people generally break the world records, they walk away saying that was easy. It just all happened. It all flowed. So this is a basis of of human performance into the future. You know, we know so little about it to be honest. But again, when you say what you know, my definition of um, you know of winning, it is to get into a so-called flow state after all the work has been done. And you can't do it without it. Such that then it. You know, decisions run at you easily. They say that Babe Ruth was one of the best baseball players ever. Yeah, the greatest. Apparently, he could study the stitching on the ball when it came at him at 100 miles an hour or whatever. He could actually study the flight of the ball, similar with Don Don Bradman. Okay? Now, these people, for them, it's slow motion. For us, it's like what happened. You know, you look at the great footballers in AFL or, or, or rugby, and they carve time and space out of nothing. Yes. And the and the, the punter looks at it and say, what happened? Now these people can't even explain what they did. It's a, this intuitive reaction of being, and again they you know, they can do it easily. It's a twist, a turn, or whatever. Most people would think, you know, it's they, they do, you wouldn't even pick it up. So it's really human performance of the highest level where it all kind of flows. And then the question is, how do we reproduce that anywhere at any time in the world at our own volition? And that's really the that's really the, the opportunity that we've got in the future, and that's the thing that I find intriguing personally. So if I'm up on the blocks you know, as, as an Olympian, and I look you're going to, to my... get a bit fitter. Greg, <laughs> well, <I don't>... <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> Keep talking. Yeah, well, I'm using my imagination, okay? Um, if I look to my left and I look to my right, we're all the same, aren't we? At that level, yeah. Okay, so it comes down to that one thing upstairs, isn't it? I'm either going to win it or I'm going to lose it. And I'm going to probably think at the end of the day, did I cut any corners? Did I do everything I had to do to get here to deserve it? Yeah. And you know what? You're not even thinking, Am I, it's either I'm going to either win or I'm going to lose. You're basically in this, in this tunnel of making it happen and loving what you're doing. So you've got a billion people watching the concept of losing, you don't even want to go back to your home country, but you're loving the process. I wouldn't be dead for quiz. When John Eels, for example, in the in the World Cup, when he uh, made that famous kick and won the World Cup, yes. okay, as captain, talking to, to to John, I said, "What's going through your mind?" He said, "This is a, it was a boyhood dream, not the pressure, not the concept of my God, failure was written all over it. It was a boyhood dream to be able to take that." that uh, ball and give it his best shot. And uh, Steve Hooker, the Beijing Olympics, last the last jump, he'd missed the first two. That's right, yes. Steve, what going through your mind? Oh, boy, it's, it was just a dream that this is, this is what I've been living for for all my life, not facing failure at all, just but again. And he did it, Olympic gold medalist. But what about in 1983, 
you're, you're taking on the people you know well, the Americans, who haven't lost for what, 132 years by that time? Was that, is that right? That's right. Okay. So they've got a pretty arrogant skipper from what I looked at as a young kid. I still remember it, watching it at friends' homes every morning. And uh, I want to know just before you even got to that race, did you seriously think you were going to win? Well, first of all, we came from 3-1 down. Yeah, I remember that. No, but even before you entered, before you got to the point of starting the competition, John, yeah. when you and the team sat down, as you said, Mr. Bond was supporting it all. Yeah. We've lost, we've lost, we've lost. Mr. Hardy's lost in the past. What chance did you really give yourself? I felt deep down that we were good enough to win this thing. Okay. Now, whether that you could want to bet on that, you wouldn't want to. It wasn't a good business decision, you know. To, you ask most people, sane people, what are you doing? We're trying to win. We're going to, in the business of winning the America's Cup. They said, well, you're wasting your time. And you'd have to say that's pretty logical stuff. I would think that when we went across, probably 60% of the team felt deep down that we could win. We could win, not knowing the speed of the boat or, the you know, how, how we're going to shape up against the Americans, but the amount of work that we'd put into it and the experience base we can Interesting enough, on the 11th hour, I reckon 95% of the team felt deep down we could win that thing. And you get those, you get 95% of any organisation absolutely committed that we're, get, we, you know, we're good enough to get the job done. Then you, that's that cre- can create magic. So when I'm, so I'm asking, I'm answering the question as best I can, and that is, I felt deep down that I personally, yep could handle the situation based on my Olympic experience and other world championships I competed in. And I felt that the team was good enough to be able to having, you know, that was my third, that was my fourth America's Cup. So three losses, yeah. so plenty of scar tissue, a lot of experience in other words. And I felt that, uh, yes, we could take on the Yanks. But then are you going into the race and saying, you know, we are going to win it? No. You can't say that, in my opinion. It's different because there's so many variables. All you can say is we're going to give this thing our, the, our best shot. And it takes the pressure. That's the point. It takes the pressure off the, off the team and off the individual. All we can do is give this thing our best shot. So you were down 3-1. What did you say to the team the night that night? Well, it's pretty simple. I, I said, well, you've got to be a bit crazy. So I'm, I said to the boys, just imagine you're on the back of an eagle, a thousand feet in the air. Now, Greg, you've been on an eagle, haven't you? A yeah. Feet yeah, big eagle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we are. We're on the back of an eagle. And we look down and we see our America's Cup boat going through the water, Australia yeah. too. And these boat, boats, they're not submarines, but on, on a surface vehicle, which is, you know, America's Cup boat. You have a bow wave and you have a stern wave. And the bow wave and the stern wave is just drag. But that's the reality of a boat going through the water. So I said to the boys, you're on this, you're on your eagle. You go down with big scissors and you cut off the bow wave and you cut off the stern wave and you release our boat. In other words, you release the consequences of winning or losing out of our brain. It's the way I could describe it. And you just get on with the job. And the reality is, is that if you, and this is really key, in my opinion, for performing under extreme pressure when it, you know, it wasn't life and death, that's for sure. It's not like a military operation, but it wasn't far off it. If you can get rid of the consequences of winning or losing and just getting on with the main game and saying, 
how good is this? You know, I wouldn't be dead for quits. This is a lifelong dream to be able to play the game at this high level and then see how it flows and see the result that comes from it. Then it's a different mindset to the the great concern about winning or losing and the consequences thereof. What was the edge then? At the end of the day, you had, you know, we, we grew up as kids, the wing kill, and you talked about the technology, the innovation, the teamwork, the skipper. What was the edge? The only way that I think I can describe it is like links in a chain, like Formula One racing. You've got to have the equipment, you've got to have the organisation behind you, and you've got to have the team. Any of those links being weak, and then you can't play the game. So 1970 America's Cup with Gretel 2, actually we had a faster boat. Is that right? But it was lambs to the slaughter. We just weren't good enough as a team, match racing team. The Americans just ripped us apart. 74, the boat was slow, but the team was pretty good. Uh, 80, it was just kind of, you know, what, you know, we just weren't in the game. So we had all these links strong. So the, the organization was very strong, a lot of experience, a guy called uh, Warren Jones. He loved the smell of gunpowder. He loved toiling with the American uh, Defense Committee, you know, and all the legal stouches. So he was never intimidated. In fact, he was bored when he wasn't fighting the Yanks. You know, you've got to have these people. You just bring it on. And the technology was driven by Benny Lexon, yeah. the wing heel. That was driven by a, a philosophy which I, I'll just touch on. That is any of this stuff is improving all the time, whether it's swimming a 100-meter sprint, You'll take it any any four year period of the Olympics, you get improvement in performance. We see that. We, and Olympics is the cutting edge of human endeavor in many ways. And you look at the, um, you take any 20 year period of the Olympic movement, you get a quantum leap in performance, 100 meter sprint, throwing a javelin, doesn't matter what. Yeah. Now, the body, human body needs more than 20 years to change. So there's a lot of reasons for that. But regardless of even, not even worrying about, why is it so? The question is, all we know is that in 20 years' time, the game will look much more sophisticated. Our kids will be playing this thing called the America's Cup in a much further manner compared to what we have now. So what we said to our, you know, the organisation from a philosophic point of view is let's emulate what we think the game will look like in 20 years' time by our children, not by us, and bring that thinking to now. And even, even if we get maybe 10 or 15% of what the game will look like in 20 years' time and apply it to now, we'll become so good that even with the worst luck, we'll still be successful. So the reality is, is that the competition, from my perspective at least, you know, being a bit zany, wasn't the Americans or the Brits or the Italians or the French that we had to beat or, you know, eventually get to the Yanks to, you know, to race in this thing called the America's Cup. The competition was ourselves in our inability or not to take our blinkers off and think about into the future. So the wing keel came from that type of philosophy. It unleashed the creative creativity of our people, including Benny. And Bondi was a very important part of that, and giving, you know, giving the okay to let's think outside the box. You've talked about high performance, but what's high performance leadership? It's a good question. Setting the environment that people can maximize their own potential both individually and also within a team so I, I from my perspective a high performance team is driven by two fundamental elements one is this thing called trust 
huge, big deal trust. We're talking about real trust, not just you know. And then the other is a vision, you know, a purpose. Those two fundamental elements are, are, are key. And trust is, you know, it's, it's really family values of us humans. It's like, it's integrity, it's honesty, it's transparency of communication. In other words, again, no bullshit. Yep. What you say is what you do. Uh, it's having fun. Us Aussies have got to have fun. It's all part of it because if we're in the business of seven by 24, you know, if you're not enjoying it, then forget it. And if you have those elements deeply embedded, and we didn't, you know, for the previous America's Cups, for example, but we did with the Australia too, and that was part of my leadership style, then you, you know, you potentially can move mountains. And then the question is the vision. And the vision for us was 20 years out. What's this game going to look like? So you talk about unleashing people's imagination, particularly young people who have no scar tissue. There's no fear of failure at all. Can I ask you, John, in structuring that team for that competition, one of the most prestigious competition that it is, on an individual basis, were they the very best in their own positions or was it actually the very best team that you selected? Well, there's no question. Ultimately, it was the team. You know, obviously, obviously uh, the most credentialed person on the boat with Olympic bronze medal and three America's Cups under my belt, okay. but not a gold medal. However, lots of, you know, scar tissue in terms of, you know, this whole mental game. I remember the East German... East, in, in when I won the bronze in 76, East Germany first, Russia second, Australia third. They, were, they had sports psychologists even then, you know, and I was intrigued on how calm these characters appeared to be. Whereas most people look at, you know, when you get out in front and, you you know, they melt away because the pressure's too much. Yeah. But the point is, is that our team became a champion team. And it was almost impossible to kill us off because the trust was so strong. You know, we were literally, you know, we're in that environment. We're blood brothers with each other. And that's just a wonderful environment to have, you know, where you, and of course, highly, highly skilled people. You know, we're, you know, we're well prepared. The machinery that we had, again, all part of the closed loop. You know, I, th- I remember, uh, you know, we had, I have a quite a long, an excellent relationship with some of the Formula One teams, including McLaren. Oh, yeah. And they were saying that the three greatest race drivers the world's ever seen is Fangio, uh, Etten Senna, and Schumacher. And that's, of course, until Lewis has come along. And uh, they, the McLaren guys were saying when they got uh, Senna involved, he could take a, one of their cars around the track and with one lap give more accurate feedback than any other driver in the world in terms of what he felt needed to be done to fine-tune that piece of machinery. And with the, our America's Cup, you know, myself with a, you know, education at MIT and, you know, all that stuff. And the other people we had, a guy called Grant Simmer, who's now done 11 America's Cups, would you believe, as CEO of the latest British effort. You know, very, very interesting people we had on the, in the team. That closed loop feedback back to design engineers and particularly Benny was all part and parcel of it. So our machinery, in other words, the boat, the package, the technology was world class. The team was world class. And we had people like Warren Jones defending us, you know, on the shore. But performance is about consistency, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's day in and day out. So for the benefit of our audience who are in high-pressured roles, maybe not as you were under the spotlight, but sometimes I might not feel like going to work or sometimes I've got to run that extra lap. I don't really feel up to it. How do you keep it up, John? How do you actually keep that, that performance is day in and day out? 
you drop it, you're gone. Toughen up, Roger. Simple as that, <laughs> is it? Yeah. You know, your professional attitude, not necessarily a professional athlete, but a professional in terms of attitude. <clears throat> and you know the intensity that's required and you reproduce that. Okay. Now, you can't, rep- you can't be full on all the time. And we used to, you know, you take time out, whatever. But when the, we, we talked about a big switch, you're in cruise mode. And then when it's race time, you're in race mode. You've got a big switch and you turn this thing from left to right. And then that's full on. And you just go back to the environment, the attitude, the, you know, the, the interaction with each other. As you know, you can perform at the highest level. So it's a professional attitude. And then it's time, it's when it's time out, you go back into, into cruise mode. Yeah, but the big switch goes on. When you cross the line, how did it actually feel? Relief. Yeah. Relief that we could now go home. You know, we'd been at war, for goodness sake. So things turned sour. Mm. Uh, 3-1 to 3-2 to 3-3, the final race, race of the century. It was a big deal, of course. And, and uh, to give you an example, most of the crew were ill from that day, effectively the next day onwards. I had pneumonia. We had no Ill- illness in seven months that were over there in Newport, Rhode Island. It's amazing what people can do. But you let the guard down and everyone became ill took us a long time. I mean, it was quite a study in terms of, you know, human performances as individuals. When, and I've never been to war, but, you know, I could imagine like the Vietnam War, you're behind enemy lines fighting for survival. You pull it out, you're you're living, that's great. You don't go and party, you go back into a rehab hospital. Yeah. You know, and that's how we felt. So it took me months and months to be able to go along to a dinner party and talk about nothing. (laughs) Which happens at a dinner party, you know, whereas I'd been, I'd just, I'd climb Everest. And I remember, Greg, that, you know, after that final race, and I'd climbed Everest and we were the best in the world and I was the best in the world at my craft at that stage, I looked around and it became clear to me how little I knew about what I'd been doing. In other words, for the first time, I could see 360 degrees. It's a strange feeling where I could then see all the work and the opportunity for the technology going forward, the way that we sailed the boat, the improvements we could make, uh, the fundraising elements, the the logistics, all of those elements, it became clear to me that this was just the start of a journey in terms of human endeavour. And you know what? 83, 2003, go forward 20 years. It makes our project look like T-model for this stuff compared to now. And all we do know, and this is the beautiful thing, if people listen to this podcast, all we do know is in 20 years' time, the game will be much further advanced yet again. So when we talk about business and we think we're doing a good job, unleash the potential of humans by suggesting what's, if 20 years is too far, what's this game going to look like in 10 years' time? You know, all different businesses. We talk about disruption. Enter the internet. That's changed everything. Massive change. Mm. I was over in Silicon Valley a year and a half ago, and we spent a day at Facebook with the Facebook executives. They reckon that we're ta- we're basically utilizing about five percent of the potential of the internet. Five percent wow. compared to what we will see into the future. That's the reality. 
So, you know, this thing is a journey. And, I, you know, I tell people the main thing is to stay curious. If you're to make real progress, you, you know, uh, we're talking about a student of life here because the game is changing so rapidly. Game's changing every day of the week. Agree with that. And in 20 years' time, couldn't agree more. However, in 20 years' time, when it's three all, that team's got to get out of bed in that morning, sit down, have breakfast together, walk onto that yacht, have all the world look at them. Can you talk us through what was the morning about? Well, it's like a bubble, you know, highly professional bubble. No question. We, uh, I had no interest in what was happening back home. So you, a, phone, a phone's off, John. Like, what was yep. it shut down? What is it all about? Other than mum, no one could get to me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you never. You got. You know, there's not. Mums are hard to come by, so there's no way. But she, she didn't bother me. She was fantastic. So no television sets, no newspapers, no nothing. Okay, in the compound. And it was, you know, it was a, um, a mission. And we up at 5.30 in the morning and just the same old scenario, go through the weather forecasting and so on and so forth, on the boat, leave the leave the dock, 9 o'clock plus or minus 30 seconds, boxing kangaroo flag, broken out, men at work down under, our battle hymn, and we're gone. Okay, tow out. And it was really, it's a little bit like, um, you know, not not being aware, nor does one want to be aware of the people around you. So I had no interest nor recollection of the crowd on the dock. You know, again, this is this whole focus world. And, uh, you know, looking back at the race, the lead changed six or seven times, that final race, anything could happen. We made, and I made less mistakes than the opposition, as it turns out. Because the boats were very, very similar at that stage in, in speed. The Americans uh, upgraded their equipment and good luck to them. And uh, it was full on, but it was slow motion for me. You know, as I mentioned before, I may have made maybe 2,000 decisions over a three and a half hour yacht race. You know, this it's a long time. Talk about energy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, those decisions or those issues were coming at me slow motion. And as a result, I could feel that I could make, you know, we're talking about microsecond decisions, you know, not, they don't have time to think. It's intuitive reaction to different situations, searing the boat and whatever. Uh, they came at me seemingly easy. It was easy, even though it was war. <laughs> what did mum say when you, when you did the job? Oh, she was thrilled. So she, Bless her soul, she uh, she got a lot of my uh, key sailing gear. Most of it went off into auctions and so on. You know, but anyway, I discovered when Mum died about twelve or thirteen years ago. Looked into a big round cardboard box down at Chelsea, which is where she still lived. And there's my sailing jacket and foul weather gear, all folded with tissue paper in between the folds, so that you wouldn't get they wouldn't get creased. Oh my God, that's Mum, isn't it? You mentioned a very interesting man you got to know, Mr. Bond. Yes. What, what was he like? Amazing entrepreneur. In the beginning of the end, well, first of all, you talk about chutzpah. Alan first challenged for the America's Cup when he was 34 years old. Unbelievable. And technically broke at the time. <laughs> that wouldn't stop him. What a joke. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, that's how this country has been built in many ways. That's right. And he and we got hammered in 74, and I was part of that team, but, you know, I was assistant designer with Ben Lexon, you know, MIT degree, all that stuff. 
He went back in 77, went back in 80, and in 83 we won it. The beginning of the end for Alan, looking back, was winning the America's Cup. Why? Because up until then he couldn't get a meeting with anyone in Wall Street. The day we won, he had every investment banker wanted to meet him and, more importantly, every Saudi Arabian prince wanted to lend him money. Ah. And Alan was in the business of double or nothing, looking back, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had I had um, breakfast with Alan after he came out of jail quite a few years back. Uh, Alan since, you know, passed on. And I said, Alan, what went wrong? And he, about half an hour later, he asked, he answered that first question. But primarily, working outside the, as Warren Jones would say, outside the elastic limitations of the rules. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. But an amazing entrepreneur. How did the win change your life? It gave me a sense of confidence that maybe my grandmother was right, that I could do anything. God bless her, you know. Uh, it, it's obviously given me an amazing entree to people around the world. You know, the, the, the Kennedy family, fascinating case study. Stayed with Ted Kennedy and spent time with, uh, you know, with Jackie. And all that stuff, you know, because they all read the books, my the biography, yeah. and um, they want to find out more because they were mad keen America's Cup followers as well. Jack, JFK, John, Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, who one of his dreams as a kid was to defend the America's Cup, you know, as a crew member. Yeah, he's ex naval officer. And yeah. Hero. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so it's amazing the people and Interesting enough, Greg, the number of people have still come up to me literally every day to tell me not what I was doing, but what they were doing when we crossed the line all those years ago. It obviously, it um, you know, it was a big deal in this country. You've also had the flip side of that, John. You've skipped a boat which uh, snapped yep. in the America's Cup, so you've been up triumph and defeat. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm famous for winning the America's Cup and sinking an America's Cup boat. <laughs> so, so what happened? Did- what happened? Why did it happen? Okay, so that that project that was 1995, and I was then I was then chair, you know, of pulling the program together, which I really enjoyed. The deal was to get world class people from all around the world working, right. and so therefore we had American designers as well as Australian designers working with each other, and this was really key. We talk talk about a life lesson. So we had design engineers from the US and also from Australia, and they didn't really enjoy each other's company enough. Ah. And one of the key things, again, when you're committed 7 by 24, is you've got to have a common sense of humour. Humour is so important. In other words, enjoying each other. And they and what we think is funny, the Americans think is kind of strange, you know, the way we would get close to each other is we would insult each other, particularly men. You old bastard, you know, whatever. (laughs) Okay? I mean, Americans... In America, that would they'd be insulted, whereas things that they think are funny, we think is really weird. Okay, so this, you know, even though we speak English, it's not necessarily the same. And uh, so, when we look back on it, the times that our design, in, our structural engineers in particular, were spending with each other was such that if they had, in my opinion, spent more time together, they perhaps would have found that we had a so-called stress hotspot in the deck. We had the software, we had the computer software to determine that, and uh, another three or four kilograms of carbon fibre, and it would have been strong enough to about 
could have gone on and we could have perhaps won the America's Cup, although the, Amer- the New Zealanders are very, very good at the same time. Lessons learned. Yeah, and that's that's that really shoots back to myself, you know, in terms of as chair of the of that syndicate, that that was a failure in in management of in de- really understanding that you know we perhaps had a compatibility issue there in a mission critical part, which was structural engineering. So when you know it's a failure, how do you analyze it? Well, again, looking hindsight's a wonderful thing because then we, you know, we, the question was, what do you do under that you know crisis environment? Well, the question was not who was the who was uh, uh, at fault? The question is what we do. I remember meeting Chuck Yeager, you know, and you say that changed my life. Well, yeah. again, you know, hanging hanging out with Chuck when he came to Australia one time, and uh, he was the when right, the, the right uh, stuff. Apollo, eh? Oh, amazing! When he when that the I think it was the Apollo project blew up with the uh, you know with the uh, teacher and so on. I'm not sure which one it was. It wasn't Apollo 11, but anyway, one of them. He was then uh, asked by the President of the United States to head up the commission to find out why and the lessons learned. And I said to Chuck, Chuck, what went wrong? Who was responsible? And, and I'll never forget. He said, John, I'm not concerned about who was responsible. I'm only concerned of what do we do to rectify it to move forward. Yeah, right. Fantastic stuff, yeah. John, you've been invited, or you were invited to chair the Swimming Australia after what a disappointing London Olympics. What was the mandate and what did you find? Well, I have, I have no uh, swimming background, you know, administration. Or, but for better or worse, the uh, the board asked me, they were all over the place. There was real concerns. There were various uh, reviews done, both cultural and, uh, and, and, uh, and structural about the swimming. And primarily it was dysfunctional. The organisation was dysfunctional coming out of the London Olympics. 2012, you know, the still knocks thing, it ripped the organization apart. Yep. The uh, lack of transparency, a whole bunch of stuff. So I was, I came in and I came across an organization that was really on its knees, to be honest. Wow. Um, not that the passion was not there with the swimmers and coaches, but there, it was difficult times. And uh, looking back at it, my role was really to bring an organization together, get new people involved, we had to. Uh, you know, get rid of a lot of the, the so-called history of the scar tissue involved and get this thing back on track and develop a vision and develop trust. You know, get back to that fundamental formula of trust. Get this thing so people will work with each other and not, not um, you know, white-hand each other. And that was happening. And uh, again, you know, the transparency and the, and the uh, honesty and, in, and integrity from the senior management and also champions within, you know, that such that it becomes all pervading that we're in the business of trust. We've got each other's back here. And, uh, you know, we're in the business of taking on the world, not unlike the America's Cup. You know, the Australian Olympic swimming team is our number one sport. You know, 30 or 40% of all Olympic gold medals traditionally is won by the swimming team. So the spotlight's on big time. So we had uh, 55 people in reality, about 10 of them remained. The rest we moved on and we, we brought new people in over a year and a half period. And uh, we built a new organization really from scratch. Yeah. And you've um, introduced the special forces, I hear. Yes. And again, it's um, I have a terrific relationship with the Chief of Army, as it turns out. We did the Kokoda track together with a bloke called Ron Barassi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To... to uh, 
to celebrate Ron's 70th birthday. Ronald sometimes signs his name 17410-17410. So what does that mean? You know, he's just great for us. He competed in 17 grand finals as a player or as a coach and won 10 of the buckets. No one will ever achieve that, you know, 17410. So, anyway, he's now Chief of Army. He was then head of SAS operations, as it turns out. And um, through that uh, relationship, um, we've introduced special forces. And again, Greg, this is all about performing at the highest level when, when it, when you've got to perform. Yep. Okay. Which is what sport is and Olympic sport. And we've learned a lot from these people because it's pragmatic, real world stuff. So we're going to win next year. What does win mean? Gold. Yeah. We're going to win gold. It's a matter of how many and the sense of expectation of the team. So what does win, what does win mean to you? It means the, the team members generating their own personal best performance. Nothing more. And if they achieve their own personal best, then results will flow. And great results will flow. Because our team is really, you know, some of our swimmers, not all, but some of the, our athletes are absolutely world class. If they just generate their own personal best, they will be proud for the rest of their life. Is there much difference between us, the Americans, the Brits, the Russians, the Spanish, etc., in the pool these days? Uh, it varies. The Americans have a tremendous in-house uh, intercollegiate competition. Uh, their trials are just as competitive as the Olympic Games, as it turns out. In Australia, we have a we have a highly competitive environment, but in reality, it's a little bit like dancing with your sister. <laughs> yeah, what's that like? Go on. Yeah, like in the US, it's dog eat dog every weekend. Yeah. Pennsylvania University versus Stanford, God knows all we want. Here we don't have that intercollegiate racing. However, we've got, you know, great pedigree and great history. The UK generating some amazing superstars, Adam Peaty, who's just, you know, just dominates the world. So it varies. The Russians, are, you know, it's, it's hot in the kitchen, that's for sure. Where's technology playing its role now in the Olympics? Is it? Is there too much technology in the Olympics? I don't think so. I think that uh, it all gets – ultimately it gets back to human endeavour. The coaches – you know, we, we have a uh, tremendous new program with uh, Amazon Web Services. It's the world first. And they're helping us with um, new tools for the coaches to make the better decisions in terms of relay selections and so on using artificial intelligence and data lakes and God knows what. Really interesting stuff. However – Ultimately, it gets back to the to the athlete, to the decision making of that athlete. And typically, in the finals and Olympic Games or or whatever, any ten or any six or seven athletes could win Olympic gold. It's a matter of achieving their own personal best. Invariably, those personal bests are not achieved in the finals of the Olympic Games. Mm. Why? Pressure. Yeah. So the question is, how do you handle the pressure so that you actually do achieve a personal best. And that's where the military come in. Because unless they're close to personal best, they in some cases they will die. Very, very clear. It's quite binary. So what sort of stress training do you give your uh, you give your team via the military? It's really understanding what the type of work that they go through. It's a matter of understanding this, you know, the whole environment of of uh, slow motion, of lactic acid when you're fully stressed out, heartbeat, pulse rate, understanding yourself, yeah. understanding how you can actually trigger this thing called into the flow zone. 
and that's the that's the that's the silver bullet. And this is a journey. We're only we're just scratching the surface. How do you actually get into a decision making environment? It's exactly like doing a deal. Okay, you're the CEO of a major company or whatever, or startup doesn't matter. Yes, trying to raise extra money, and you've got to actually close the deal. Okay, under a huge amount of self-induced pressure. How do you make the right decisions at the right time, and how do you, you know, execute accordingly? And that's all between the ears, because all the work has been done at that stage. Let me ask you another question: If I came out of a struggling, I don't know, African country where I don't have much money, much resources, but I've got all the way to the Olympics. And the American turns up with the best kit of all time. Is that really an equal race? Is that what we really want from the Olympics? That's technology playing, and sometimes maybe too strong of an influence. Well, technology will, yes, there's no question that technology is being used more and more. It's very, It's an important philosophic question compared to a, Perfect level playing field. Well, aren't I after the champions in spirit and effort? But put it this way: they come from they come from Africa, right? And they're, they're in the five thousand meters. And they've been training in altitude. Yes, and you say right? that, can't yep. Right, and yep. they've been running to school since they were a little kid in bare feet. Yep, because there's no mum to take them in a, in their you know in their motor car. All of these things are advantages, massive advantages. So it's a matter of, you know, it, it's not impossible for uh, athletes from countries that don't have the sophisticated tools not to compete in the uh, at the highest level. And it gets back to the individual. It's amazing. Uh, let, let me go back. Bannister, I think it was 1954, yep. four-minute mile. Yep. He was, I think he was a, um, a student either at Oxford or Cambridge. That's right. I'm not sure which. Yep. The medicos at that, and he was a medical student. The medicos said at that time that the human heart is not strong enough to propel a man around the track in under four minutes for one mile. He didn't believe that. Okay. And he eventually, they broke the four minute mile. Unbelievable. Within nine months, something like 10 athletes from around the world broke that mysterious record. In the 92 Olympics, um, with Bruce McAvaney, I, uh, I spent time with Rouser, with John Walker. Oh, yeah. The first man to break 100 four minute miles in between smoking a cigarette. Okay. Like, you know, you look back and it's a joke. Now, what they do now is just so much further advanced. That's the point. And, and this is human endeavor. You know, these are, you know, the, once, the, once that uh, Everest has been climbed, then 500 people a year climb Everest. Okay. The four-minute mile is not seen as a benchmark at all for you know for athletes. So I see these kids from around the world with a dream, and if they're in the business of thinking what the game could look like in ten years' time, then they can blow away the Yanks or the Australians or the Brits or whatever. Everest. Let's take it out of sport for a second. Let's move into say business. Is it true you rang up Mr. Hawk once to get some advice? And who's the best entrepreneur out there? Yes. And what should I do? So what's the story there? Well, when I came back, I decided that I didn't want to continue in the marine industry. I had a sail-making company called North Sails, okay? Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's more to life than that. And the best advice advice I got was a very good friend, a guy called David Howes, 
And he said, John, walk and talk. Find out what other people are doing. Make a living. In other words, I had to find it. It's typical of, you know, the higher you go, the bigger the fall in terms of, you know, with all the focus and to the exclusion of anything else in life, you're able to, you know, example, win the America's Cup. But it leaves not a lot left, you know, not as if there's, you know, another career that I'd been creating on the side. So... I started to look at what other people were doing, but it's a, the deal is to find the next passion in your life mm. and hopefully make a dollar out of it. So I, um, I, yes, I rang up the Prime Minister of the day, Bob Hawke. I said, uh, uh, Mr. Hawke, he said, call me Bob. Okay. <laughs> and I said, I'd like to work for the most entrepreneurial person in the country. Who, who should I talk to? And uh, he said, can you, can you be in Sydney tomorrow? I said, yes. He said, I want you to meet Peter Abels. All right. And Peter Abels was then the, um, the head of, of TNT. And also, you know, Handshake, he was partner with Rupert Murdoch owning Ansett Airlines, a handshake. And they used to talk each day to each other. So I went to Sydney. I met uh, uh, Sir Peter. He was behind his uh, desk smoking a big cigar. So this is probably, this is 1984, and he was trading shares in 1984 on a, on a computer, for God's sake. Talk about ahead of his time, the ultimate yeah. Jewish trader. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And he looks up and he says, John, what have you done? And I said, well, we've just won the America's Cup. He said, fine, but what have you really done? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, um, so we started talking we, for about two hours, and he said, would you like to run the Ansett Airlines? Yeah, and I said, well, let me have a look. <laughs> so I went through the organisation. He said, come back in a month and give, tell me what you want to do. And I said, anyway, I, I met a new entrepreneurial startup in, in uh, solar energy, a joint venture between Australia and Israel. So I decided to get involved with that, which is fascinating, and uh, worked in that space for about three years, you know, within uh, under Sir Peter's guidance. But again, a very interesting entrepreneur, you know, Peter Abels. And again, a global a global view of life. If we were to sit you in front of Rupert Murdoch or something like that, who's been outstanding as a businessman, what's the difference, do you think, in mindset between the SAS, the winner of the America's Cup, and Rupert Murdoch? Is there much difference? I think um, Rupert's hobby is business. That's the point. His, his, his love of life is business. He's bored when he's not involved in business deals. So the question is, his, his passion is business, and he's good at it. And he doesn't see the stuff that he does as risk-taking. He just sees it as a calculated decision. Yeah, right. You know, I remember Alan telling me one time, Alan Bond, he said, the difference between real entrepreneurs and others is that an entrepreneur needs about 30% of the data to make a decision because the rest of it is intuitive gut feel as a result of being a real um, a student of the subject, okay, whether it's property development or whatever. Whereas most people need 90% of the data to make a decision. Okay, that's the difference. So with Rupert, he just loves business. He loves deals. He loves, the, you know, all of these things. And I've had a bit of, I've spent quite a little bit of time with Rupert over the years, as it turns out. Uh, so in my world, you know, my passion was this thing called sailing and the America's Cup and Olympic Games and high-performance teams. And uh, so in reality, that's where my career has taken me, more in the so-called high-performance teams and, and, in, and 
let's say with Swimming Australia, the world of, of building something with passionate people in this thing called sport, more so than takeovers of major companies and so on. If I was dropped into a deep valley in Afghanistan and I'm a member of the SAS and I'm patrolling through there and one of the guys says, hey, this doesn't feel right, I bet you they'll turn around and walk and get out of there because it's based on intuition. Yep. You mentioned intuition before. What do we know about it? Not much. Women have a great sense of intuition compared to males, men. A woman can generally, my observation, size up the character of a person, male or female, much more rapidly than a man. We're, we're pretty dumb in that space. Our brain doesn't compute as well. You know, we can get snowed more easily. Women can figure it out much more clearly it, you know, on the average. You mentioned about, you know, the, the, uh, the Australian SAS, and this is through the Chief of Army, they back their people to the hilt. The Americans use a lot of technology, yep. satellite communications and so on. Yep. The Australian, for example, you know, special forces, SAS and commandos, they never question their bravery. They never question the bravery. When they're fully trained and fully equipped and prepared, if the, if those, uh, if those, uh, you know, combatants decide that doesn't feel right, then they accept that. So this concept of intuition is a is a um, again it's a it's a journey, and we know so little about it. And there's no question in ten and twenty years time we'll know much more. And I remember reading some of the great quotes of Steve Jobs. Oh yes, and he talks about backing your intuition. Now that's fascinating stuff. Mm. And and you know the wind shifts for me, an intuitive feel for it. Not you know, can't explain it. The footballer carving time and space out of nothing. You know, why is it so? A businessman feeling that it's right. I remember talking with, you know, during the 95 America's Cup, spending time with, with uh, Rupert and, and his then wife, Anna, and they were about to take over. I think it was MCI. And I said to Rupert, you know, what's the business plan? And he said, John, we don't really have a business plan, but we'll make it work. <laughs> you know, but if you're going to back anyone, who is a student of this space, then someone like Murdoch would get it right more, more often than not and to progress. You know, it's amazing, his career, when you look back on it. So it's, a, it's an area where, again, you know, the supercomputer hanging between our ears, there's so much more potential. We think that scientists suggest that we use 8 or 9% of the potential of the, of the brain. If we can move that to 12%, we have massive breakthrough. Can I ask you, you've had a very privileged life and had the opportunity to meet a lot of very interesting people. If you look at the heads of states, business leaders, sports people, which two or three really stand out for you? Interesting enough, Margaret Thatcher. Just met her once, but I'm, I, I was fascinated in terms of her global view of life. Uh, Jackie Kennedy, where you know, she had this most beautiful persona about her, but she was inquisitive. We went to dinner one time with Jack Fallon, who's our friend, and uh, Jackie had read my book, and and there was John Jr. We went to a uh, restaurant, I think it was called the Mediterranean Restaurant in downtown New York, tough neighbourhood. John came up on his bike, and Jackie was there, and myself and Jack and so on, and uh, she, we sat down and, you know, first of all, the, the door opened and everyone realised it was Jackie Kennedy. You're talking about royalty in America. Everyone stood up yeah, right. until we sat down. 
it was a tough Jewish neighborhood. You know, it never happened in Australia, for God's sake. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we sat down and uh, she had no eyes for anyone else. The whole audience, our whole restaurant was watching us, uh, except for the people around our round table. And first thing she said, John, is tell me about the psychology of winning within the America's Cup. She said she read that chapter and she was intrigued with it. So her, her, how inquisitive she was and, you know, it's, a, it's left a really indelible mark. Uh, so there's been various people. Bob Hawke, amazing communicator. Yeah. You talk about being able to seize the, seize the moment, you know, when he said anyone who sacks anyone <laughs> being late today is a bum. That was not pre-rehearsed. I know that for a fact. I was speaking to his security guys later, years later, and they happened to be in Perth for some sort of a conference. They, he said, screw it, let's go down. We're going to, you know, go down to the yacht club and, you know, we won the race. And But amazing ability to communicate. And leaders are all about communication. There's no question. You have to have the ability to communicate in a sincere, you know, they use the word authentic, but authentic manner that captures people's imagination. And Hawk, Bob Hawke was able to do that. And what he and Keating did as a, as a combination, as a partnership, is extraordinary. Bloating the dollar, deregulating the financial system. Just after the America's Cup, he thanked me many times, you know, in terms of, the, you know, on the wave of, of, of the, um, you know, the confidence of the country, but typical of Hawke. So he, he was an amazing statesman and he was bored with domestic politics in the end. He was intrigued with the international stage and kind of he grew up into that space. What do you think of the uh, the leadership of the country today? I think it's under attack. Social media destroys, you know, normal, you know, all the conspiracy theories and God knows what. It's a very noisy environment that we work in now. It's tough. Um, I think the COVID thing has really shown the stripes of some good leaders. Um, uh, and I think that under the circumstances, the leadership that we're seeing at federal uh, and most of the state is okay. Um, you know, I'm living in Victoria. I'd love to see the Premier Andrews working more with business on how business can work through um, the, uh, the the requirements, health requirements, so that we can get this country, this state back in, in, in train. But the main thing is the concept of honesty. And I, Rose and I were living in the US at one time when Reagan was running the show in America. And it was a, uh, a major, major issue. On, it was an Iranian deal or Black Hawk Down deal, or whatever. Anyway, it was a major screw up. And he gets on television. And this is, I'll never ever forget that. In fact, Reagan was someone who I, I was just blown away. We, we met yeah. him in the, in the White House, spent time with him. And uh, anyway, he looks straight down the barrel. Okay, and there's all this controversy about the, you know, America doing and the president hiding things. And he said, my fellow Americans, I have made a mistake. And this is what we're going to do about it. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And immediately he had uh, the Americans, the rank and file on his side. Oh, that was over, that was over the Contra affair, wasn't it? That's Oliver, it. Oliver North. That's it. That's right. Yep. He had to come out first have, in music. But, yeah. My fellow Americans, I have made a mistake. How basic is that? And when politicians come out straight away and, and apologize instead of covering it up, that's the basis of real statesmanship, in my opinion, because mistakes will be made. And Reagan was, you know, remarkable and 
when we went, we presented, represented with the America's Cup in the Rose Garden. This is, you know, after we won, but it's a couple of days later up in, up in Washington, capital. And I started, and I, and we did a tour that gave us a tour of the White House. And I asked his chief of staff, what makes this man, you know, the most powerful man in the world? And first of all, I remember looking down when I shook, I shook uh, the president's hand. And I, I looked down the, and he had the most shiny sh- black shoes I've ever seen. The thing that goes through your mind, Johnny, who must shine those shoes, those black, you know, funny stuff. But anyway, the chief of staff, I said to him, you know, what, tell me about what makes this man so different, the most powerful man in the world. He said, well, possibly the only way I can describe it is, is that uh, when we were negotiating, renegotiating an arms uh, deal with the Russians and uh, the, the Russians came across and I'm not sure which which uh, president was running Russia at the time. So at any rate, the uh, so he so he said this is the best way I could describe it. So the Russian team came across and beat up on the boss. The boss wasn't hadn't done his homework. So they did a debrief afterwards. This is what the chief of staff of Ronald Reagan was telling me, and he said, um, you know, uh, obviously, boys, I you know this is Reagan. I didn't do enough homework. I need to really swat up, get this thing sorted. And let's Let's have a, another meeting uh, back in Moscow and we'll, we'll get this thing sorted. So at any rate, a month moves on and they're flying back. And this is what this guy's telling me. They're in the jet, the President of Jet Air Force One. And they're flying in and um, Reagan is looking out the window. And uh, the uh, chief of staff said, so do you have any further questions? And Reagan didn't say anything. And he said, uh, sir, are you okay? And he said, son, have a look out through this, this window. He said, what are you looking at? He said, there's no heavy transporters, there's no major trucks on these freeways in Moscow. This country's in trouble economically. And that was the start of Star Wars, which people would now suggest broke the back of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Russian economy. When you did the travel around the world as you've done all your life and lived overseas and mixed, as you say, with the most influential people in the world, and you come back home to Australia... What do you see? Are we maximising our ability? This is you're a person who strives for perfection. Where are we at? And where's where's the Australian psychology at? Well, it's interesting. Tough times bring out the best in people. Okay, so what I see again with the internet and disruption and so on is I see our young people as a call to arms. I love that. You know, you never bet against young people with enthusiasm and willing to give it a go and make mistakes, learn from it, and move on. You know, failing fast, as the Americans say. It's a wonderful concept. We're growing. It wasn't that long ago that if you went, if you, if you went belly up, it would be a terrible, terrible scar. Not anymore because of the reality of building a business. Most entrepreneurs that make it big in the US have failed at least two or three times before. Mm. That's, the, that's the average. Okay. So, you know, if, if people start a new company and it's successful, good luck to them. But generally, you need that experience. And, uh, you know, that's just the, 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 the reality of the world. So I look back and we're in this COVID thing and our backs are to the wall in many ways. You know, when JobKeeper stops and it's going to be tough for a lot of people. But people will get on with life and I like that. It's going to give us some backbone. And when we came back, Raz and I came back from London, living in London in the 2000s, and I remember the uh, the catch cry then, uh, that was actually a John Howard thing, is, the, the vision is for people to feel comfortable. 
And I thought, my God, how terrible is that? Yeah. You know, relative to getting on with life and doing stuff and making things happen. Because I'd come from an, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial world and I hung out with people like Bond and Murdoch and these characters. And uh, but now it's different. We're not talking about comfort. We're talking about getting on with life, and it's a semi-survival thing. Like my mother, all those years ago, she had to make it happen. Yep. And I like that. You know, we've gone through the un- unbelievable. You talk about a lucky country, twenty years or whatever it is, of nothing. You know, the GFC didn't even touch us. Amazing when you look back on it. Well, this thing is touching us, and I think people are going to come out. So I like that. I, you know, to me, I think bring it on. Now bring it on. I'll ask you something a bit, bit more personal. You had a bout with cancer. That must have been frightening. Well, they talked about PSAs and a whole bunch of stuff that I'd never heard of, nor was I interested in. And uh, this is the doctor. And I, I came back and I remember dialing in in PSA and then pressing a button because I had the PSA number. I forget what it was. And then it was this strange feeling, am I going to live or die? So I pressed the button. <laughs> you know, it's a, as it turns I'm alive and well, so everything's fine. But um, then that was a journey of finding out what the hell this stuff, you know, uh, prostate cancer is all about. So what you call oh, it, what you call it then? You called it a journey. Yeah, journey. So is that how you treated it? Absolutely. Yep. And then I got I, I interviewed the four best uh, potential of what I've been told four best surgeons and specialists in in Melbourne, as it turns out. Grilled them all, trying to get a feeling whether they're full of bullshit or not. <laughs> and um, you know because pretty serious type of decisions in the in play mm. and uh went ahead and uh, very very happy with the result it works it's great uh and so was i scared no i just had to from my perspective get on with it and face it and and, and uh, deal with it and uh i was intrigued with the technology too which is a bit weird it, as i was discovering whether i was going to live or die <laughs> can i ask you two last questions john if I'm an athlete and I've been trying to peak at the right time, how am I going mentally? The Olympics just got canned. Now it's postponed for another year. Have I? Is that a big worry? No, you haven't died. Toughen up again. Yeah. So we go. We have health and well-being, all that stuff within Swimming Australia and the Australian Institute of Sport, very sophisticated support, which is great. But the net net of it is ultimately the athlete, the person's got to take charge and say, okay, Hopefully no one or no relationships, no one's died in that regard. You get on with it, okay? Toughen up, soldier. I thought I read somewhere, uh, someone asked you once, what's next for you? And I think your statement was, I want to work on a major project or a next big project of significance to the country. What do you got in mind? Uh, I'm talking to different people. I'm, I'm not sure at this stage. Um, within, you know, I, I retired 22nd of October uh, from Swimming Australia. I've done seven years. Yep. Done it for the country. Pro bono, Are you I'm happy? Feeling, yeah, I am. Yeah, I feel really content about it. Um, you know, we have a federal model. It's really complex because you know, you, it's leadership through influence, not through command and control. Oh, that's hard, yeah. Uh, in terms of stakeholders. However, the Olympic team, the actual swim team, the, the cutting edge of the organization is within a cocoon, and that's a totally different management style. But that's, a, that's, you know, that's different. But uh, whatever I do, I, I'm in a situation, Greg, where I can, I believe I can make a difference 
and I like that idea, you know, on a big scale. So we'll see what evolves. Okay. Can I ask if you were to look back at the young John all those years ago, growing up, mum and dad working the uh, the toy business, what what advice would you give him now? Um, stay a student of life. Stay curious. Most people, um, I believe, start uh, st- uh, start stopping asking questions at the age of 14. A little kid, you know, we've got a grandkid, five years old, little girl, Goldie. And she says, Pops, why is the sky blue? Okay. Why? What makes wind? You know, oh, my God. You know, the, it's fantastic. <laughs> so this is the curiosity of young people. If you retain that curiosity for the, all of your life, then it's amazing where life, the journey that you can track as a result. Because we know so little. When I was at the top of that Everest all those years ago, champion of the world, my conclusion is I know so little compared to what is ahead of us as a human race. And that's the excitement. Absolutely. After you won America's Cup, what did you go and say to Dennis Connor? Nothing. Is that right, really? You never walked up and shook his hand? and uh, Yeah, he shook my hand you know, at the celebrations, no question. Um, and look, I, sh- I shouldn't say nothing because that's, that's a throwaway line. That's not fair. That's not true. You know, a, a huge amount of respect from me to him and vice versa. You know, we'd been at it um, on the world stage. And uh, he'd always already, he, you know, they called him Mr. America's Cup. He's changed the game. Amazing. So that was his, I think, maybe his third win of the America's Cup as a crew and as, finally as a skipper. And, uh, you know, amazing, a multiple world champion is in his class. So, But it was one of those things where you have two people at the top of their game. What needs to be said? Not a lot. No, it's just the mutual respect. Okay. We both gave it our best and, uh, and that's the reality. Yeah. John, on that, thanks very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 